Our Bible readings this morning are taken from the Old Testament uh, book of Zephaniah and the New Testament book of Romans. And you can follow along in our orders of service uh, on pages 6 through to 8. Our first text comes from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Amon, king of Judah. Everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. Moving past the next reading, down to chapter 2, uh, 1 to 3. Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and that day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Chapter 3, 14 to 17. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Our final reading comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 27. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand 
unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Excluded indeed. Let's pray. Father, we approach you this morning with the expectation that you will speak to us by the word of the prophet Zephaniah. Change us by the power of your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're drawing near to the end of our series in the 12 minor prophets. Who were they? These prophets, they were a group of men who spoke to Israel in the north and Judah in the south around the 6th century to 8th century before Christ. So they're old books, seven times older than Shakespeare, think that way. They spoke to Israel and Judah in her darkest moments. Of course, like most dark moments of history, they often force us to follow the for, to they follow us to face the truth about ourselves. The prophets, most of them anyway, this one, like many of them, follow the path of bad news first, then good news. They paint a great darkness before switching on the light. The New Testament is clear. We share in Israel's sins in the same way that we share in her promise of salvation through her Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that means that although the prophets had harsh words for them in harsh times, their word is for us too. Presbyterian writer Friedrich Buechner explains that this way. He says, and I quote, at the level of words, what do they say, these these prophet preachers? They say this and they say that. They say things that are relevant. They say things that are lacerating, profound, beautiful, spine-chilling, and more besides. They put words to both the wonder and the horror of the world. And he writes, the words can be looked up in a dictionary or in a biblical commentary, and they can be interpreted, passed on, and understood. But because these words are poetry because they are image and symbol as well as meaning, because they are sound and rhythm, maybe above all they are passion. These words set echoes, going the way a choir and a great cathedral does. Only it is we who become the cathedral, and in us the words echo through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today, I want to float an idea, using Zephaniah, that at the very base of God's character, at his very core, is not primarily love, or at least not our idea of love, with all its sentimentality, nor is, at the base of God's character, anger, or certainly not our experience of anger, which is temperamental, but at the very core, at the very base of his character, is jealousy. And you're like, really? I'll come to that. It's jealousy because with a fierce passion. You'll see that. 
time. Stay with me if you're immediately rejecting what I'm saying. If it's true that God is a jealous God, this may explain why you are both uncomfortable about the prophets and why you love them at the same time, because you know deep down that they are wounds from a lover, wounds that bring healing, as you saw a moment ago in chapter 3, he will rejoice over you with singing. So we begin our exploration of Zephaniah with these utterly confronting first words. Chapter 1, verse 2, page 6, God says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And you're like, are you kidding? Declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, I don't want to state the obvious here, but these seem like hard words. They're confronting words. They're not uncommon in our series so far. Not at all. But note here that we now have the whole world in God's sight, not just little Israel and her stubbornness, or bigger Nineveh with all its arrogance. No, we have the whole world in the sights of this holy God. Now, I don't know what your reaction is. Um, I mean, you either believe it or you don't. You're either absorbing it now or you're rejecting it. Some of you are rejecting these words right now. The obvious question is, why so angry? <laughs> uh, why so angry? I've preached on these verses before, and when I've done so, some people have said to me afterwards things like, isn't this an overreaction? I mean, the whole world swept away. I mean, whatever happened, isn't this an overreaction? Someone said to me, you're preaching a very vindictive God. Lucky, she said, it's only the Old Testament and not truly about our God. And I'm like, really? The Old Testament is another God? Paul White spoke about that two weeks ago. Get the sermon. Someone said to me afterwards, your sermons seem negative. And I said, you think? One person said, gee, God seems really cranky or at least a little tense. Maybe he needs some breathing exercises, a little mindfulness. One of my favorites, a guy in New York came to me and said, I didn't find your sermon aesthetically pleasing. One person said, I prefer God at least being passive-aggressive. <laughs> now, why do we react like this? Well, one of them is it's just scary. I mean, am I going to be swept away? Am I going to experience the judgment of God? Another reason is that we hold in our hearts false pictures of God. I'll give you some examples. We picture God as profoundly distant, sort of benignly loving, but every now and then flies off the handle. Uh, so his anger then is simply that of an exceptionally irritable, distant uncle, the kind of uncle that you're glad doesn't visit very much. Or 
here's another example. You picture God as um, a cosmic police officer. You know, he doesn't really care about anybody, but he's standing there waiting to book you, right? He's got laws to keep, waits for people to break them so he can book them, and when he books them, boy, does he throw the book at them, because that's what's happening here. Is God like a cop who just sort of um, doesn't really care normally, but just goes and hounds me when I do the wrong thing? Is that God? Or maybe you picture God as a perfectionist, like a commanding officer of an army. You know, you've done everything right, but he comes into your room and he finds a little bit of dust on the top of the, um, of the cupboard and then busts your chops for it. And you're like, really? Or maybe he's a high-jumping coach, you know, and what he's done is set the bar impossibly high. No one can really reach it. Every human being falls short, Mother Teresa and a terrorist, and so we all cop it. And you're like, really? Or maybe you perceive of him a bit more darkly. Maybe he's a cosmic Dr. Evil, a dictator looking to hurt and control with no sense of ultimate justice or profound love. Now, if these were models, and by the way, you might not have ever thought of them in those categories, but they might picture something you've got in your head about God. One guy came up to me after 8.30 and he said, isn't it, God that God, isn't it great? He said, that God just loves us all. And I'm like, you've got that uncle thing going on, haven't you? But you read words like this and you're like, he just loves us all, except sometimes when he really hates us. See? Now, if there are only models, then they will affect the way you relate to God. They really will. For example, you'll be less likely to seek him and repent, or less likely to love Him, because you'll be afraid of Him. And repentance will be done suspiciously done, will be suspiciously done, perhaps as a duty to avoid an angry God. Whereas I think embedded in Zephaniah is a way of explaining the anger of God without explaining away the anger of God, but rather making sense of the anger and the love of God. I think Zephaniah gives us a grid to understand all 12 of the minor prophets, indeed the character of God. Because we discover in this book that God has a way of describing Himself, and He's not a cop, He's not a perfectionist, He's not a dictator, He's certainly not distant. God describes Himself as a jealous God. It's not the first time it's been used. It's been used all the way through the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that he is a consuming fire, and that's Zephaniah's primary message, that God is jealous. You can see it in chapter 1, verse 18, page 7, follow with me, page 7, not read to you, but is there printed, halfway down the page, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath, doesn't matter how rich you are, because in the fire of his, underline it, Please underline it in your mind. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Or in chapter 3, verse 8, a few lines down, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. Right? God says, I'll tell the truth. I've decided to assemble the nations, all of them, including Australia, to gather the kingdoms, all of them, and to pour out my wrath on them 
all my fierce anger, for the, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? The whole earth, says Zephaniah, will be consumed in the fire of my jealous anger. So there it is. It's out of the jealousy of God that God speaks in this book. Now, that's strange, isn't it? It's strange because we're so used to jealousy being considered wrong. You know, we look at somebody and say, you're jealous. In other words, you've done the wrong thing. It is, by the way, one of the acts of the flesh in Galatians 5. Jealousy. That kind of jealousy, of course, is an inappropriate possessiveness. You might describe it as envy. I'm jealous of your shoes. I'm jealous of your life. But there is a kind of jealousy that's good and right and true. When the Bible talks about God, boil it down to this. You ready? Here it is. Jealousy is a fierce protection of a covenant that will not tolerate illegitimate rivals or indifference. The closest example we have of that is a marriage. To having a marriage in all others, as long as you both shall live. And in a marriage, any other person that to the affections of your wife, or indifference, by the way, as well. Same in a marriage. You get married, but you know, you don't speak to your wife for like two months, and you don't really care, and she's, he, or he starts crying. I'm jealous. I want what we promise when the relationship is being threatened, but it's always a covenant relationship. It's just evoked when the relationship is threatened. There's a fierce protection of a covenant relationship that will not tolerate illegitimate rivals or indifference. Here's the problem. The problem is that when we compare that jealousy, which is right, to the one that we normally speak about, the one that's spoken about in Galatians 5, because the jealousy many of us experience is a fierce protection of someone or something that I think is mine by some right that I believe in my heart, and so I get jealous by legitimate rivals. I'll give you an example. I'm an Australian test cricketer. I'm not, by the way, just in test cricket. I want to win. I mean, just to clear that up. Let's say I'm an Australian test cricketer. I want to win tests. And somehow I believe that winning tests is my right. And so I feel jealous of those who win. Let's say out of that jealousy, I begin to tamper with a ball. You'd say that's wrong. Other teams are allowed to win. They are legitimate rivals to the Ashes or whatever. That's when you say I'm jealous of her shoes or their relationship, etc., etc. God is the first source of jealousy. And it's right. A minister I know was counselling a couple where the husband had been unfaithful and the wife said in the counselling session, as I looked at that woman, and I'm quoting here, sink her claws into my husband, I felt jealous, so jealous. And I felt anger about feeling jealous, to which the counsellor says what? Of course you're right to feel jealous because the other woman is an illegitimate rival to the covenant relationship you have with your husband. It will be wrong for you. He that is not just in that moment a fierce protection of the relationship you have. St. Augustine said, he that is not jealous is not in love. God is that first source of jealousy. And he has a covenant with Israel by the promises to Abraham and Moses. And he has a covenant with non-Jews like you and me. 
which gives him the right to judge covenant with Israel and the world. It gives him the right to say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, and there is no difference between you and me. He loves the world so much that he will not tolerate rivals to his affections and to his covenant. So, I hope that helps. Does it? Tell me afterwards if it doesn't, by the way. Tell me afterwards if it's all mumbo-jumbo for you. But I tell you what, there's a door there. There's a door there. Because you can see why God is so passionate. You can see why he's so against sin and injustice. But you can also see, and you begin to see, why there might be light there. You'll see that in a moment. What does God do with his jealousy? What does God do with his jealousy? Well, here, a couple of things. Firstly, jealousy explains anger. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 3. Um, let me show you this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Um, when I destroy all mankind from the face of the earth, declared the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, right, that's astrology, the stars, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch, that's syncretism, those who turn back from following the Lord, that's when you give up being a follower of Jesus, and neither seek nor inquire of him, that's when you're indifferent to the words and the word of God. God is saying here, the fact that I'm jealous means that I'm angry when you share me with other gods. You know, I'm not sharing my wife with anyone. So why would God share you with another love? That's why he's saying, I'm angry with, you take a bet both ways. You bow down to the Lord and to Moloch. You know, you've got me and another lover. You think you can do that. Jealousy is the reason why God can say, I'm angry that you're indifferent to me. You neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. You don't care enough to want the truth. The Lord demands your affection. As I said, I'm married, been married 18 years. I'm in a covenant relationship. If I carried on my marriage the way some of us treat God, I'd be out in the street, and I should be out in the street. See how jealousy helps? But it also demands a confrontation. If you love someone, you confront them. If you don't love them, you don't confront them. God is an avoid confrontation. He's not a confrontation avoider. He demands it, a confrontation. All good jealousy does. So look at 1 verse 7 on the bottom of page 6. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Underline that word. And he's consecrated those he's invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and those clad in foreign clothes. In other words, I will confront them on a day called the day of the Lord. It's a certain day and it's near. On that day, there will be a sacrifice. Verse 8, bear that in mind. Turn the page on page 7. That's search Jerusalem with Jerusalem, the fish gate, the new quarter, market district. I will search Jerusalem with lamps. The sacrifice will be in Jerusalem, and that day will be a day of thick darkness over the land. Look at verse 15 down the bottom. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of 
big question, emotional question. Has it happened? Will it happen? Will I be swept up in it? I want you to notice those words, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom of clouds. Verse 18 will extend to the whole, we'll come to that in a moment. Jealousy is God with the whole world in front of him, confronting it and us. Now you think, wow, that's a lovely message. I came to church to be cheered up and here I am. Here we are. Well, there is good news, and why? Because good jealousy has written into it, has embedded into it the desire to protect the relationship. It's because you love the person that you demand a confrontation and then do anything to save the relationship. Thirdly, jealousy protects the relationship. It declares divine love. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Why? Verse 15, 3 verse 15 on page 8. Because the Lord has taken away your punishment. When did he do that? He's taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel is with you. When did that happen? Never again would you fear any harm. Never again. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Why? Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you. He is a mighty warrior and he saves. He will take great delight in you. And you're like, how does this relate to the whole judgment thing? Jealousy is the answer. In his love. He will no longer rebuke you, no condemnation, but rather he will rejoice over you with singing. Who knew that God could sing and who knew that he would sing over you with powerful and transforming lullabies of grace? Because here is the other side of the jealousy of God. And I tell you, if you just try to say, oh, God just loves us all, or if you try to say, gosh, he's an angry God, you'll miss both. But if you say he's a jealous God who'll do anything to hang on to the relationship he has with you, with God taking away the punishments, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that he is a mighty one who will save, jealousy is the reason why you'd understand why he'd eventually sing over you with love, renewing you quietly in his grace. See, this is at the heart of the Christian gospel. This is what we remember at the table in a few moments' time, that the Lord is king and he is holy and righteous, passionately opposed to sin, but he loves us in his grace, will do anything to protect his covenant relationship and will raise his people from the dead. So question, did God go through with the confrontation? Did he do it? And the answer is, yes, he did. When? When did this day happen? There are three ways of understanding the day of the Lord and when it happened or will happen. The first way to understand the day is to understand this passage in its historical context. The day of the Lord's wrath, distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, blackness was the day when 40 years after this prophecy, the ancient Babylonians, sort of like the 
forebears to the Iraqis. They rolled in over Judah with God thundering at the head of his army. Because of the sin and injustice in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon decimated Jerusalem. He raised the temple to the ground and he turned it into a car parking lot, you know, I mean, he just flattened it. And it was a sacrifice of the temple and lives. It was public and it was in Jerusalem. But that can't be the fulfillment of this prophecy because this prophecy speaks about the whole earth being consumed. So that day has to be bigger than the day in 587 BC when Babylon flattened Jerusalem. So what's the day of the Lord then if it's not that? Well, the second way to understand it, it's layered here in meaning, the second way to understanding it is the one that we go to immediately, which is this is yet to happen on the day when Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. When he judges the earth with justice. <laughs> when he recreates a new heaven and a new earth, but not without first dealing with the sin of those outside of Christ. And that will be a day of distress and anguish. Jesus uses the word hell, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, ahead of the renewal of all things and the reigning of righteousness and grace and peace on earth. There's a good reason to believe that that day is a day to come because our New Testament speak of the day when God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, and he's given proof to you who that man is by raising one from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But there's another day, a third option, a third layer of meaning on the day of the Lord that bridges the two, Babylon and the second coming of Jesus Christ, a day that speaks eloquently and fiercely of the love of God. Because the third option is that the day of the Lord is the first coming of Jesus Christ when God is with us, mighty to save. There was a day when God did arrive to comfort Israel in the man Jesus Christ, for it is Jesus who is the jealous love of God. It was Jesus who showed us the jealous love of God by his fierce protection of Israel, by his overturning of the tables, by his passion by the tears he wept over Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed those who spoke for me. How long I've wanted to gather you under my arms as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. Jesus shows us God's passionate jealousy, his fierce protection for his people. And when the day of the Lord arrived, the day of distress, anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, clouds, and blackness, who got sacrificed? Judah? No. Who got destroyed, swallowed up, wiped out? Who gets cut off? Who experiences the distress and anguish? Who gets ruined and devastated? It's Jesus Christ, who on a day of clouds and blackness died on a Roman cross to take upon himself the anger reserved for the whole world so that having dealt with the anger of God reserved for the whole world, it can be said of us, I have taken away your anger or the anger of God. It's Jesus who ultimately shows us God's jealous love for us, his fierce protection to have and to hold us. Jesus shows us the fire of God's passion where we are forgiven and loved 
friend of mine sings, come and see where justice and mercy collide. There on his hands and his feet and his side. Isaac Watts said of Jesus, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? So fourthly, jealousy evokes a response from you and from me. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be the one who is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him. Seek the Lord. Chapter chapter 2, verse 3, you humble of the land. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And perhaps, says Zephaniah, you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. The word perhaps there says you can't be presumptuous. God didn't have to do this. He's not obliged to save us. He's not obliged to subsume his anger in the death of his son, but he did anyway. You know that he's good. It's not that perhaps you'll be sheltered. You can know for certain you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger because of the love of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, what we remember through bread and wine in a few moments' time. If God is personal, be personal back. Love him. Can't just be religious. If a God is a righteous God, then we need to learn to be like him. Got to be life-changing. If God is a God who seeks us, you've got to seek him back. Can't be boring. If God is a jealous God, then we need to be jealous for his honor. That's why it can't be private. The only response to a God who loves like this is to love him back. Let's pray.